All right, today I would like to start off by um, with an application of our text. There's no doubt in my mind that you all understand the basics and beyond the basics of today's text, you know, from our discussion. No doubt in my mind about that. Uh, I want you to think back what we've learned in Romans so far. Wicked depravity of man. From chapter 1, verse 18 until somewhere in the middle of chapter 3. Mankind is dead, lost in sin, can do nothing good for God, just nothing but what a lot of people would call bad news. And I would call it bad news too, but it's true news, isn't it? So we looked at the depths of that. And then we got into the later part of chapter 3 and chapter 4, and we looked deeply at the doctrine of justification by faith. And then we saw the implications of that through chapter 4 and through chapter 5. And then in chapters 6 and 7 and and into 8 to some degree, we looked a lot about how the gospel transforms us after our conversion, after we become a Christian. How do we conquer sin? How do we defeat sin? Why is sin still living inside of us? You know, we've been baptized with Christ. We're in union with Christ. You know, just... These are not elementary Christianity 101 doctrines. Then we get into chapter 8, and I chose to spend 13 weeks on like 15 verses. Because there was so much there. So much there, particularly about the sovereignty of God and His role in our salvation prior to us becoming a Christian. We get into chapter 9, and we're dealing with all kinds of stuff with the Jews. God is hardening people's hearts. And they didn't do anything to deserve it that God's people did not do. So we we looked at the purpose of God in election. We looked at why the Jews didn't believe. And we most recently have looked at how God is... We've looked at God's reason for bringing the Gentiles in now and why he's waiting to bring the Jews in at a time that is yet to come. These, these are, this is not rookie Christianity, okay? This is not the first thing you learn at the new members class. I told y'all earlier this year, chapter 8 is going to be a lot of fun. Chapters 9, 10, 11 going to be a whole lot of work. Say amen if you feel that's true. Amen. <laughs> but you know what? We got here. We did it, didn't we? Amen. All right? Your minds... And I've had conversations with most of you in this room about this. Your minds have really had to stretch to reconcile some of the things that you used to believe that you no longer believe. Well, to reconcile some of the ideas that you have had for years with what Paul is teaching in this chapter. And and I think most of us have had to make some adjustments to what we understand and how we understand it. You all, God has commanded us to love him with all of our minds, right? Amen. And I want to make it clear you know, that there's a temptation to feel like because you're not educated, maybe, 
or because you don't feel like you're as smart as you should be, there's a temptation to think that you can't do it. That you can't apply yourself to these scriptures. But every one of you in here are doing it. Every one of you in here are doing it. And the benefits of that for you and for our church and for our community are greater than any of us can understand. So, we've done all this hard work, haven't we? We've been thinking through things. We've been wrestling with stuff. Um, I, I mean, y'all have heard me say some of the stuff I've been teaching, I, I, I used to hate. I used to think it was the doctrine of devils, and now I believe it. <laughs> but I thought it was the doctrine of demons because I didn't understand I wasn't wrestling with the text to see what it says for itself. So anyway, we've been on a hard journey. And, and here is the result. Here's the application from our passage today as we look back at all that has come before Difficult theology or deep theological work. Doctrines that may not be as plain and clear as Jesus died for your sin. Okay? The more difficult doctrines of our faith. Here is the result. It's praise and honor and glory to God. Why do we study hard texts? It is so that God will be magnified and glorified. Why is it that we look at deep doctrine? Why is it that we consider doctrines that divide like election? Like what type of election is it? Did God choose us unconditionally or did like ahead of time? Or did God look ahead and see what we would do and then choose us? Why do we discriminate against one of those? Why do we reject one of those ideas and keep the other? Here's why. It's because God's truth. Is of utmost importance. And we will speak where he has spoken and made clear. And we will do it all for his glory. Because from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Right? Amen. Amen. So, don't ever be scared of doctrine and theology. It is worth the work. And the result of pondering and meditating and studying on these deeper doctrines is doxology. Doxa, that word in the Greek and in Latin has to do with glory. So doxology has to do with glorifying God. Why do we study study doctrine? It is so that God will be glorified and magnified. Let's look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. God, you've been doing all this stuff. And, you know, we think about the Apostle Paul, right? He's been writing all this stuff. He understood all this stuff. And uh, page 1049. um, And he understands this way better than me or you or anyone else around today, I think. That's safe to say. And, And he... I feel like he's so much further into it than any of us are today. And he's like... I'm just looking over the edge and I don't see the bottom. I don't see the bottom of the riches of God's wisdom. I don't see the bottom of the riches of the knowledge of God. Is there a boundary with his wisdom? Is there a place where his wisdom is not? Of course not. Is there 
a, 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 is there a place where his knowledge expires? No. It is infinite and eternal. Verse 33, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This idea of his judgments and his ways, it just has to do with his decisions and what he's decided to do throughout history. I believe in Paul, the immediate context of Romans 9 through 11, why God did things the way he did in dealing with the nations and the Gentiles, I I believe that's what he has in mind specifically when he's talking about the judgments of God and the ways of God. Why is God gathering all the nations and hardening some at some points in history and then electing others at other points in history? Why did God consign everyone to disobedience? And why is it that he's having mercy on all? God tells us some of the reasons. But we can't search them all out, can we? We cannot search them all out. This word, unsearchable. Think about last time you couldn't find something. (laughs) Think about the last time you couldn't find something. (laughs) Crete's holding up the remote to the projector. We couldn't find that this morning. We were like, oh, shucks, what are we going to (laughs) do? Yeah, and that sound booth is a pretty small area, right? Um, yeah, I got a big house. I think all of you know that. I got a big yard. We got a big property. I've got little kids that lose their shoes. <coughs> it's so hard to find a stinking shoe sometimes. And I can walk across my whole property in just a couple minutes. If I walk fast. There are so many rooms that it could be in. There are so many toys it could be under. And we're like minimalists, okay? We don't, like, you know, if that toy is causing a fight, that toy is going away. You know, if someone hadn't played with that toy in the last three months, it's probably going to disappear. You know, we tell our kids, you know, here's ten toys. You can keep three. Which ones do you want to keep? We're getting too many. You can't keep them all clean. Some of them got to go. So we don't have a lot of stuff. And that's just our preferred method of, of home management. That's what we've chosen to do. So when you lose something in my house, you know, it can take you a really long time to find it sometimes. I can't, I can't even tell you right now if our living room upstairs where the TV is is clean or not. Mm. So I'm getting one thumbs up because sometimes it's clean and sometimes it's not. But that's perhaps the largest room of our house. And I don't even remember looking in there yesterday or this morning to see how clean or dirty it is. And our our living room is not in the center of our house like most people. But anyway, um, so I, I can't search out every nook and cranny of our 2,900 square foot home. How much more difficult is it to search out the mind of God? This morning, I walked to those animals over there to bring them that. And then I walked to those animals over there to bring them that. 
And y'all know us well enough, we do rotational grazing. So sometimes our animals are here, sometimes our animals are there. We move them, there's a lot of benefits to that. You know, we, we, that's how we like to do it. But I zigzagged all over that property this morning for 35, 40 minutes. I can't trace my steps. How much more the mind and the thoughts of God? How much more the mind and the thoughts of God? We get to verses 34 and 35, and Paul asks three different questions. There's only two question marks, but there are three questions. And these are rhetorical questions because the answer is so obvious. Amen? Amen. Who has known the mind of the Lord? We know it partially, right? Because God has revealed it. But who has fully known it? Nobody. Who has been his counselor? When's the last time God caught you on telephone and asked you for advice? (laughs) He did not. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? The answer is nobody. Truth is, I can barely keep up with my own thoughts sometimes, much less someone else's thoughts, right? In verse 35... Just a quick note, when the, we have this few people here and you whisper, I can hear every word you share. <laughs> so, verse 35, God doesn't owe you anything. Amen. And we saw that when we looked at God's election of his people. And we live in a world where we think God owes everybody something. And we say, why didn't God choose everyone? Wouldn't that have been the right and just thing to do? And we say, no, the right and just thing to do would have been to throw everyone in hell. So the, an- the question is not, why didn't God save everyone? The question is, why did God save anybody? Anybody, Because we were all dead in our sin and our transgression. And dead people cannot resurrect themselves apart from a miracle of God. So from these questions in verses 34 and 35, we see that God is the initiator. It all starts and it all comes from him. He didn't need anyone. He didn't finally have this aha moment. He didn't have an epiphany and all of a sudden... He understood something that he had never understood before. He didn't wake up one day and decide, hey, things are lacking and I need to do something that would fix it. He is the originator of all that is good and true and beautiful. He did chapter 11, verse 32. God has consigned all to disobedience and he has poured out mercy on all. So we get to verse 36. These are Paul's final thoughts on this matter. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I, I, I see kind of two ways to think about this. I see like a directional element, like traveling, like my things go the way they go. And I see everything that there ever was except for sin coming from God. And then it's like those things come back through God. 
and they come to us and they go to him and, you know, from him and through him and to him are all things, the blessings, the calamity, the illness, our salvation, our sanctification. God is just in it all and over all. So I see this directional element as he sends things our way and as things and as those things go back to him by, you know, as we respond and, and he receives our response. But I also see an element of verse 36 that is historical in nature. It has to do with time. You know, we all have a past. We're all living in the present and we're thinking about the future, right? Well, from him, God created, right? That's the past through him. Everything's coming together through us, right? You, you, you know, there, there's, he is involved in every single element of our lives. He knows how many hairs you have on your head. He knows how many hairs you used to have on your head. Amen. And he knows the future. He knows the next time your car is going to break down. He knows the next time your calf's going to get out. He knows what your pastor's preaching on in two week, two two months. He knows who's coming in this door and who's not coming in this door. It is all from him and through him and to him. What we do is we respond to him. In a way that honors him. Um, Turn to Acts 17 if you would. I want to unpack this from him, through him, to him part. Acts is right before Romans. Acts 17, 24. I want to unpack what it means that things are from him, through him, and to him. Page 1028, Acts 17, 24. In this passage, Paul is in a brand new city. He's gone to Athens for the first time. The gospel is there, and, or, or he's taken the gospel there, and he is finding that the city is very religious. They have a lot of gods, but none of them are the true God. And so he preaches publicly. In Acts 17, 24, he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it. Do you see that? From God are all things, right? The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. That goes back to the part that we don't repay God. As though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, right? So we see the from him part. He gives to everyone, the just and the unjust, life and breath and everything. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So right there, God is saying, I'm the one deciding that Alexander the Great is going to invade all those nations and conquer them and make them his own. That's me. God is even the one deciding whether the Gaza Strip is inhabited by Palestinians or by Jewish people. 
God is overseeing all of that. Verse 26, it says that he has already determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So Romans eleven thirty six says all things are from him and through him and to him. So right there at the end of Acts 17, 28, it says in him we live and move and have our being. We are through him. Like we, we, our lives, this very moment, the dysfunction in our life, the things that we're struggling with, the things that aren't right, he is intimately involved in these things, is he not? Amen. Turn to Colossians 1.15. Colossians is a, after Acts, after Romans, after Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians and Philippians. Then you have Colossians. If you get to the books that start with T, you've gone too far. So Colossians 1.15. We'll unpack a little bit more. Page what? Page 1086. Colossians 1.15. It is all about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him, what things were created? All All things. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before what? So right there we see the distinction between the creator and the creation, right? So he is before all things, and in him all things do what? Hold together. together. I know at my house, at my mom's house, and at Dwight's house, we've all had new appliances lately, right? There's been some coming, there's been some going. He holds those appliances together, and he lets them fall apart, y'all. Every bit of it. So he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What does the word preeminent means? mean? It has to do with being supreme. That which is over all, or that which is first. So that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. Verse 19, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself. What things? All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Aren't you glad that through all of that, God is making peace? That's the goal. That's the purpose. To reconcile all that is broken. And to undo all the effects of sin. And to make it all new. And then it says, Romans 11, we're done in Colossians 1. Back to Romans 11. Then it says in Romans eleven thirty six, To Him be the glory forever. Amen. All of the glory. 
In Isaiah chapter 48, 11, the prophet, or God says through the prophet Isaiah, for my sake, for my sake, I do this. I will not give my glory to another. One of my college professors, that was his favorite verse. I don't think a week of class went by where he didn't share that. For my sake, for my sake, I do these things, God says. I will not give my glory to another. And that's in perfect agreement with Paul's words here at the end of verse 36. All the glory is for God. All of it. He will not give it to another. And how do we respond according to verse 36? What do we say? Amen. Amen. What does amen mean? It means it is true. It is true. Every time we say amen, we say it is true. May it be. So Paul closes this section. He's calling us to say amen with him. He's calling us to agree. And, he's, and he wants... He knows it's going to happen, but it's not happening yet. He wants all the glory to go to God. So he's saying, let it be so. When he says amen, he's saying, let it be so. That is the only appropriate response from God's people to the truth that all glory belongs to God. We say, amen, let it be so. So I ask this question. How are we transformed by this amen? These truths about this infinite, eternal God that has no boundaries and no limits where everything is from him and everything is through him and everything is to him. You know, we're, we're wrapping our minds around best we can around infinite, limitless things. And, you know, our minds are quite limited. So we're being stretched. So how does this stretching, how do these truths that challenge us transform us? If these truths, well, let me say it like this. When these truths are central to our lives, we don't get bored. Anybody ever get bored? I am convinced that the reason people get bored is because they don't have a vision of this infinite, eternally majestic, wholly self-sufficient God. We spend, we as Christians are constantly tempted to be consumed with the creation and not the creator. Now, God calls us to tend the creation. You know, we're not heavenly beings outside of a physical body. You know, we don't, you know, you know God put Adam and Eve in the garden before they sinned. And he said, work that ground and keep it. All right, we're still working that ground. We're still keeping it. And we're all doing that different ways, of course. But, you know, we're here, we're on earth. But are we doing our work on earth and are we living our life on earth with a vision for this infinitely wise, self-sufficient, beautiful God of incredible majesty? If we're not seeing him first and foremost... then what's around us is going to crush us. People disappoint. 
God never disappoints. Amen. We must gaze upon the infinite glory and beauty of God. One of the unhealthier patterns of my early Christian life had to do with me needing this mountaintop experience with God, you know, where I feel really close to him, right? Because it's good to feel really close to God, right? Amen. You know, but some days you feel closer than you do other places, but that's not because God is flaky. It's because... I'm flaky, and you're flaky, right? Mm -hmm. But I used to constantly need this mountaintop experience with God. So maybe it was a Mercy Me concert, maybe it was an Acquire the Fire event, or some really super fun thing. And all those are good, and all those are fine. I ain't got no problem with any of those things, okay? So hear me say that. But my life with God would be boring if I wasn't getting ready to go to one of those things or at one of those places or had just come from one of those places. Christians can get bored sometimes thinking that we need more and more and more. But isn't it true that God is already fully and completely available to us? That he pours himself out on us? Is it not true that God is deeply involved in the ordinary? If all, if from him and through him and to him are all things, then even me brushing my three youngest children's teeth every night is ordinary and, and really, ain't none of them in here right this second, as boring and humdrum as that can be, God is in that. You're changing the brakes on your car again. God is in that. I think Christians get bored, and I used to get bored sometime because I thought everything had to be spectacular with God in order for life to be exciting. But I tell you, no. From God are all things. Through God are all things. To God are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Whether I'm singing praises to God with a thousand other people in a big auditorium, or whether I'm sitting here with nine of my brothers and sisters in Christ praising the Lord, God is in the midst of it all. To Him be the glory. To Him be the glory. See, when I take road trips, I see the mountaintop Far, far away. And eventually I get closer to it. And then it's behind me. And, and then I get further from it. And there might be another mountaintop ahead, but there might not be. And on this journey of life, every day is not a mountaintop experience with God. But God is deeply involved in the ordinary. Church. Gaze into the glory of an infinite God each and every day. And if you do so, you will not grow boring, bored. You will not grow bored.
I want to say this. I, my generation mostly walked away from the Lord. I mean, I can tell you about people I went to church with growing up who don't have anything to do with the Lord at all. And it breaks my heart. One of the reasons I believe, and if you question me about this later, if you have any concerns about what I'm saying, I can't give all the qualifications for it that it might be due right now. But generally speaking, I think the church, the American church, but also the church in Gates County, we have had a very small and boring God in our churches. And kids have grown up in church, going with mommy, going with daddy, going with their grandparents. And they didn't see anything beautiful at church. They didn't see anything wonderful. There was nothing that was worthy of their attention and their devotion and their worth. We presented a God who was boring to them. Well, now they're 35 years old. Now they're 22 years old. They don't want to go to church. They think they have tried that. And they did try it. But they didn't see God at church. Y'all, in our gatherings, whether they're, they're big or small, let us put God at the center. In your life, whether it's a good week or a bad week, let us put God at the center. So no matter what happens, people will see that God is incredibly involved and present. If we can undo this trend of having a boring God, then I believe he will capture more people's attention and more people will come to him. And the future generations will not be walking away from God as they have been. A second way. All right, so how are we transformed by this amen at the end of verse 36? We don't have to be as bored as we used to be. And neither does the culture. The second way that we're transformed is that we are humbled by these truths. Why would God be involved with me? God's election of us should amaze. He doesn't owe us anything, yet he gives to us what is most precious and most free. We should be humbled by this amen, that from him and through him and to him are all things. Also, in this humility, we need to realize and recognize that we are creatures Embrace your creatureliness. Embrace the limits that come with it. Until all the effects of sin are undone in creation, our bodies are going to break down. Until all the effects of sin in creation are undone by the gospel, other things that belong to you are going to break. God said to Adam after he sinned, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to work to provide. We have limitations upon us. All things don't flow from us. And all things don't go through us. And all things are not to us or for us. Amen. Amen. But from him and through him and to him, from the creator, through the creator, to the creator, are all things to him. Be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Not us.
So church, embrace your creatureliness and all the limitations that come with it and know that every single part of it is from God and through God and to God. Say it with me. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. To Him be the glory forever. Amen.